So this is kind of a change of pace of any other guests I think you have had. And I'm a follower of you guys, and I listen to your podcasts, and, and everybody's got you know the idea of thought leadership and business. And I, uh, you know, I certainly agree with most of, of all of those things, but most of the techniques that they come up with are techniques that we could not use in a prison camp, and yet the success of this group was phenomenal. So that that's <laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And uh, I, I think that's the value that I can bring to uh, to your podcast and to your listeners is to talk about uh, how you face the challenging times as a leader, because. The folks that, that we had in that prison camp were certainly the best thought leaders I've ever seen. You're listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. Welcome to another exciting edition of the podcast, The Business of Thought Leadership. I'm your co-host, Nikki Ballou. And I'm your other co-host, Michael Palmer. Boy, do we have an amazing guest lined up for you today. He is a genuine American hero. He served in the military and he had, um, I don't know how to put this, but he, he had an experience of being a POW in North Vietnam. And uh, he knew some pretty famous people like... Uh, Admiral James Stockdale, as well as Senator John McCain, who was the 2008 Republican presidential candidate. And he is also a thought leader, author, and speaker in his own right. I am super excited and honored to have him here on the show. Welcome to the show, Charlie Plum. Thank you very much, Nikki and Michael. Great to be with you guys. It's great to have you. It's an honor to have you. It truly is. So our listener is typically someone who is either an aspiring thought leader or a thought leader themselves. So they're really interested in learning from you how they can take their life and their business practice to the next level. And the best way for them to do that is get to know you and get to know your story. Charlie, tell us your story. It's fascinating. Well, I was a farm kid from Kansas dreaming out about flying airplanes, though I thought at the time that I would never, ever be even in an airplane. I uh, I didn't get out of the four states of Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska, and Iowa until I was 17 years old. Got on a bus, and um, two days later, I was pledging to defend the Constitution of the United States at the U.S. Naval Academy. It was all, almost by accident, I'd say, because I didn't have any great dreams of you know being a, an admiral or commanding the ship or these kinds of things. It was an education for me. My parents couldn't afford to send me to school, so that's where I went. I graduated from Annapolis, married my high school sweetheart, and uh, took her to flight training. And so I went to Pensacola, Florida, and, and, and Meridian, Mississippi, where John McCain was my flight instructor. Are you serious? I, uh, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah, it was kind of coincidental. His brother, Joe McCain, uh, lived next door to me at the Naval Academy. So I got to know the McCain family fairly well, and I, I, and I eventually served under, her, under their father, the Admiral J.S. McCain. So uh, out to San Diego, California, where I learned to fly the hottest airplane in the world, the F-4B Phantom Jet. This is a supersonic interceptor, 1,400 miles an hour, time to climb, uh, records, everything. You know, it was, um, I, was, I was at the top of my game for 74 successful combat missions over Vietnam. With five days before the end of my tour and my return to my, my lovely wife and 
and uh, the States. I was uh, blown out of the sky um, by a surface-to-air missile. My co-pilot and I ejected from that burning airplane. Uh, our parachutes opened, floated to the earth, and that started six uh, years of imprisonment. Nearly six years, 2,103 days, but then who's counting, right? <laughs> so um, my value, I think, to your listeners is that I feel like I have I've witnessed the finest thought leadership uh, in the world. And I have been a member of a team uh, that's the, the, the finest team I've ever served on. And but in presenting this to you and your listeners, I'd like to I'd like to give you this challenge. Let's say your client comes to you or your boss comes to you, whoever you, you report to, and says, uh, I've got a challenge for you. It's a very important challenge. In fact, it's uh, really life or death. I'm going to send you to a desert island and I'm going to uh, to give you 200 people to accomplish this mission. And you're the leader. Now, there are a few restrictions here. First of all, you can't fire any of these 200 people. You can't hire anybody new. You can't motivate them with bonuses or promotions or vacations. You can't even see them. In fact, the only way you, can, you can't communicate with them with, with text messages or, or video links or um, telephones, the only way you can even communicate with your followers is a very cumbersome code where you're tapping on a wall with uh, numbers indicating various letters of the alphabet. And it's a very slow, uh, cumbersome way to communicate. Now, I want you to pull out the, the, the best uh, leadership techniques that you have and apply those leadership techniques to this situation. Well, of course, you can figure out that I'm talking about the POW situation. Absolutely. We arrived there, primarily fighter pilots. It was an air war, and so pilots were being shot down, and so we had a prison camp full of fighter pilots. There were a total of 592 of us who came home, and to a man, these fighter pilots, uh, and I'm certainly including myself, were very depressed. You know, we'd been tortured, we, were, we had disease, we were, we were skinny, just, you know, very little to eat. And, and we were being, we were in uh, jail cells. It wasn't like a uh, compound. It was jail cells, a lot of solitary confinement. One of the guys was there in solitary alone for four and a half years. And, and so to a man, we felt very, very depressed. We'd given up. Fighter pilots aren't supposed to give up. You know, we were supposed to be, we're supposed to be strong. You know, the, the, the top gun genre, that's who we are. And then to give up and then be tortured and have given the, uh, in to the enemy, to have surrendered, uh, we felt guilty that we'd let our country down, we let our buddies down. Some guys even considered suicide because they, they couldn't imagine going back to the United States after, after we had besmirched our flag. Well, so, so you've got this group, all right, and, and uh, certainly I was one of them. And when the first person I communicated with said, hey, you know, there's good news here. <laughs> I said, okay, you're not a victim. I said, oh, yeah, right. Um, we are warriors. And we have leadership in this camp that's turned this thing around. They've redefined our mission here. We're, we're not on the defensive. We are still on the offensive. 
And we have a set of, of rules. We have plans. We have goals. We have objectives. We have incentives. But it's not it's not the kinds of things that you that you think of. Well, and so that that leadership, uh, Jim Stockdale, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Jeremiah Denton, uh, uh, John Great McCain, uh, and and the other leadership turned this thing around. So, what's the result of all this? A study was done just three years ago of all the combatants from Vietnam uh, and of the 1.5 million people who served in Vietnam, 30.6% have post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Of the prison of war population, 4% of us have PTSD. What? And primar- the problems primarily are the guys who are only there for a, sh- a few weeks or, or, or a month or two shot down near the end of the war. Phenomenal. Uh, the whole idea that you know the, 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 that you can go through an experience like that and and come out with a positive result from 591 men we've produced uh, 17 generals, seven admirals, two ambassadors, a governor, several mayors, two United States senators, a vice presidential candidate, a presidential candidate, and uh, the doctors are telling us we're healthier today mentally and physically than if we hadn't been shot down. So. This is kind of a change of pace of any other guests I think you have had. And I'm a follower of you guys, and I listen to your podcasts, and, and everybody's got, you know, the idea of thought leadership and business. And I, uh, you know, I certainly agree with most of, of all of those things. But most of the techniques that they come up with are techniques that we could not use in a prison camp. And yet, the success of this group was phenomenal. So that that's... <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And uh, I, I think that's the value that I can bring to uh, to your podcast and to your listeners, just to talk about uh, how, how you face the challenging times as a leader. Because the folks that, that we had in that prison camp were certainly the best thought leaders I've ever seen. It's a rem- Ch- remarkable story. Absolutely remarkable story. I'm blown story. away by it. And I am, I'm, on, I'm on the edge of my seat wanting to know what happened, how it happened, and how you had that incredible, and the entire group had that incredible result of, of being able to pull success out of it. Jim Stockdale was a senior residing officer, the SRO of the prison camp when, uh, when I was shot down. And he continued to be uh, for, well, they moved us around a lot. And so I was in different camps with different SROs. And as new pilots came in, some were senior to him, and so they assumed command. Uh, this was uh, one of the real advantages of being in the military and in a prison camp, is you always knew who was the boss. We all knew our date of rank, our lineal numbers, uh, graduation dates. And so the first thing you did when you got communication with another prisoner was to find out who's senior to whom. Uh, who, you know, who, who's, who's calling the shots here? And so I was very fortunate because I was very junior. I was a lieutenant junior grade. That's the second rank that's an O2 uh, in the military. And so many, many people were senior to me. But as the years wore on, I continued to be a, a JG. And my classmate, my Naval Academy classmates, had been promoted twice <laughs> while I was there. And these guys would get shot down near the end of the war. And uh, and so they they uh, they... Uh, they were senior to me uh, just because I had been in the prison camp and, and did not know that I had been promoted. 
So they, so the senior guys took took the leadership positions, and uh, Stockdale and the other senior guys uh, came up with guidelines. Now the code of conduct says you give only name, rank, serial number, date of birth to the enemy if you're a prisoner of war. The code of conduct uh, has has several other parts, uh, paragraphs, and you're not supposed to accept any favors from the enemy. You're not even supposed to talk to the enemy. And so there's a, there's a, there are guidelines. Well, by the time you got into that prison camp, by the time you got communication with anybody else, you'd already broken the code. I mean, I mean you, you had not followed the code by that time because you'd given in, you'd surrendered. And so part of the, the leadership problem and, and part of the reason why Stockdale was such a great thought leader was to, to, to tell us, hey, Okay, um, you, you know, we had a bump in the road there, and we've stepped backwards, but oh, by the way, you know, we're still alive, we're still going, we're still growing, we have a mission. And he established this motto of all the prisoners of war, and the motto was, return with honor. <clears throat> return said, with honor, I like that. Return with honor, mm-hmm. and that was our mantra. And uh, Stockdale said, every decision you make Every thought you have has to be surrounded by return with honor. And so he would say, okay, they pull you out of your cell and they take you to the torture room. And you hold on as long as you can. Because we knew by that time that none of us, nobody, um, is, uh, is strong enough to resist. I mean, you know, there were guys that actually went to their death trying to resist the torture. And so he recognized that. And Stockdale said, when you go into the torture room, hold out as as long as you can and then start to give in bit by bit with lies. Don't tell them the truth. Just, Just tell them what they think they want to know. And then when they stop torturing you, you come back to your cell and get on the wall. That meant start to communicate with the guys in the cells next door. They, you see, the enemy wouldn't let us communicate with each other at all. We we couldn't talk. We couldn't, you know, there was there was it was was no communication. And so we set up these secret codes where we would tap on walls or or tug on wires. We even had a code where where uh, we found that, that most of them had tuberculosis and, and they assumed we did too. And so they were always coughing and spitting and making these guttural noises. And, and we found out that we could do that too. And they paid no attention. So we made a code out of these silly guttural noises. That's too so, funny. Yeah. Well, you'd wake up in the morning, you the guys next door go, that means good morning. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. That's awesome. So, we would uh, write notes on little pieces of toilet paper and ink made from brick dust or ashes with a, a quill pen made from a stick of bamboo. And we'd, we'd, we'd wrap this note around a rock and we'd heave it, the, hock, the rock, from, from one cell block to another cell block. We call that airmail. It, it was an interesting part of the system was just to communicate and to keep our hand in, in the cookie, cookie jar and, uh, and, and to try to deny any any control that they might have over us. 
or our systems. Once um, J- John McCain was in a cell, he was shot down just five months after I was. And I was the, the first guy to communicate with him uh, because I, you know, I knew him as a flight instructor. And um, <laughs> one, one time I passed his cell and I whispered to him, why the hell didn't you wash me out? Tim, <laughs> <laughs> and, and his cell was right across the, right across the pathway from uh, our sewer house. The, the, the sewer house was just this little brick building where, where you walk in and there's a hole in the, in the ground and you dumped your bucket, you know, you dumped your, your latrine bucket uh, in there. We'd get to do that, you know, every three or four days in this two-gallon bucket. And so the bad news was that, man, this, this sewer house stunk to high heavens. Man, that thing is bugs and rats and you can't even imagine. You, you had to hold your breath just to walk into this place. The good news was the guards didn't like that sewer house anymore than we did and they would not follow us in there. And it was literally the only the only time, 24-7, that the guards did not have their eyes on us. We thought, it's a natural. We'll make a, you know, we'll make a, 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 a post office box out of our sewer house. Oh, my God. So we, we designated different cracks in the bricks, uh, different, uh, you know, holes in, in, in the ceiling uh, of the sewer house to be the, the peel box of the various um, prisoners. So everybody had their little crack in the brick, and you'd write a note on a piece of toilet paper and fold it and put it in your belt loop and and to carry your bucket in there. And while you were in there, you know, you'd, you'd put your mail in who it was going to, and you'd pick up your mail, and you'd walk out. Well, one of my buddies is walking down to, towards the sewer house. He turns the corner just outside of McCain's room, and as he turns the the note falls out of his belt loop and onto the ground. Well, this is serious stuff. Somebody's going to get hurt, and it's going to destroy our entire entire communication system. Well, McCain's standing in, at his door. He's on he's on crutches, it, uh, homemade crutches. McCain had five, uh, had seven broken bones when he was shot down, and they twisted his broken bones to torture the poor guy. And so, uh, but so now he's on his crutches, but he's watching this through a crack in his door. When he sees the note hit the ground, he starts pounding on the door and cussing at the top of his lungs, uh, 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 distracting this guard. The guard went over, beat up John McCain, while my pal picked up the note and walked on into the sewer house and went on with his business. <laughs> and so, so, so this is the kind of a system we had. The, uh, but it, it was just absolutely vital that we keep those communication lines open as it is in any leadership position. And it was vital that the, the leadership communicate to us the goal, the purpose, the reason. Because, you know, I, I think in, in, in all situations in, in thought leadership, uh, you, you have to have a purpose. There has to be some kind of a, a baseline goal in mind and I look at it as a, a characteristic. You know, I think it's a. I think your goals have to be have to be positive, and and, and they have to be legitimate, and they have to be uh, with great integrity. And that's exactly what they came up with. Our leadership established plateaus of uh, resistance, and um, we had to bow to to the guards. That was one of the things. A, a low ceremonious. Uh, 
uh, bow anytime you saw any other Vietnamese, um, a guard or a cook or anybody else, and he, or when they came to your door, that was the first thing you had to do was to make this bow to them. And so that was the first level of resistance was to stop bowing. And so, uh, you know, I mean, this thing, this sounds really, really rudimentary, but it was a big deal to show our unity that that Stockdale could call um, for level one a resistance. And suddenly no prisoner was bowing to any Vietnamese. And it shocked them because they didn't know we were communicating. And they didn't know we had this system. And so suddenly we gained some power just by this very simple, this simple level of resistance and, uh, and, and they would back off. So that's, you know, you know, that's, that's basically what the thought leadership in the prison camp was, uh, was about, was establishing defined goals and coming up with a purpose, communicating up and down the chain of command and, uh, and it worked. We'll be right back with the rest of our interview with today's guest. Welcome to another segment of Strategies for Business Success. I'm Nikki Ballou, and I'm here with Michael Palmer. And today, Michael, we want to talk about one of the other 10 steps in our Authority Marketing Blueprint one-page download, and that is clarity of market. Why is having a clear market so important? Number one, if you are not clear about who you're solving, how can you expect to communicate to them? How can you expect to be able to have your message resonate with them? I mean, we can start to talk about the demographics. We can talk about who they are uh, physically, but then we also have to know who are they are who they are psych- psychologically, uh, psychographics. What is it that they feel? How do they think? What is their view of the world? All of these things matter when you're trying to impress upon them or make a difference for them. You have to be able to speak to a specific person with one of these characteristics. If you're trying to speak to everybody, guess what? Nobody's going to listen, especially in today's world where there's multiple messages being put in front of us, and that is not going to slow down anytime soon. Absolutely. If you try to sell to everybody, it's like you're selling to nobody, right? You better believe it. Yeah, and, and, and it's really important that you've got a specific group because that's the only way you can show your heart. That's the only way that, that they'll know you want to make a difference for them. So if you want to get a copy of the Authority Marketing Blueprint, all you've got to do is go to the website authorityrocks.com. And you can download a free copy of this one-page report. What's beautiful about this report is that it's on one page. Winston Churchill once said that any plan that took longer than a page to explain wasn't worth the paper that it was written on. So we took his advice to heart. We put all of the 10 steps on a single page. They're powerful. They're impactful. Yet they're in chunks that you can uh, digest and use immediately. So go ahead. Go to authorityrocks.com and make sure you download a copy of the Authority Marketing Blueprint today. We're back now with the rest of today's interview with our guest. This is a fascinating story. I mean, I've been sitting here at the edge of my seat listening to everything you have to say. So my next question, how have you taken the gold from this experience 
and applied it to your own status as a thought leader, your books, your speaking. Tell us about that. Well, so many of the principles that I learned in that prison camp are the things that I apply today, and not just in my business, but in my personal life, in my family life, you know, dealing with neighbors. Well, it's it's certainly part of who I am. And so, you know, the basics, um, I think the things that I learned there and the way that I apply that in my thought leadership is, number one, clarity of purpose and legitimacy and integrity. And I'm convinced that if I if I can't be honest in everything that I do, if I can't uh, be open and transparent with the dealings that I have, and not just with my followers, but the people that I report to, to my wife and kids and, and family, then things just aren't really going to work out very well. And it's amazing to me how if you go into a situation, and particularly a challenging situation, and and you don't see an answer at first, you know, and you're sort of blindsided uh, in a business deal. And and you think, well, this, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to get out of here. I'm going to back out of this. This is this is not working. I don't see any way to make it work. But if you hang in there and, and of course, this is what we had to do as prisoners of war. You can't back out <laughs> the situation whenever you, you know, whenever you get tired of it. But uh, in in business situations, if you can. Uh, get creative and find other ways to to define the problem and then see it as a puzzle. I think a lot of life is just a, is solving puzzles. It's just, you know, figuring out, okay, um, you know, here, here are all the pieces. Oh, yeah, they're all jumbled up, and I don't know which one fits with fit. But, oh, by the way, I'm convinced that there is a solution to this. And in the prison camp, you know, there was never a day I thought I was going to die there. I, I always knew that there was a solution. There was a way out. And I apply that in my life today. Is that when I come up with, a, you know, the, the big mountain, you think it is too high to climb and you can't get over it and you can't get around it. And you can't, you know, you, you, you feel you feel stunned. You feel um, you, you feel very lonely and you feel very depressed. If you can look at it as a, as a puzzle and think there is a solution to this, and all I have to do is think about this. One of the big advantages that we had in the prison game was solitude. It's very underrated today. You know, it, I, I think most people in business think that activity uh, eventually equates to profit. And uh, I'm convinced that sometimes you have to sort of, you know, stand back, sit back and figure out, well, this isn't, this isn't working. I got to do something else. And, and I do that today. I, I'm a, a mountain biker. I bike up mountains. I always like to, to ride alone because it's when I'm alone that uh, gives me these, uh, you know, these ideas. And uh, when I'm alone is, is, is when I come up with the, with the thought leadership that I, that I need. I wholeheartedly agree with you that solitude is is very necessary and going within even. I mean, uh, last year I did a um, a 10-day meditation program, a Vipassana. Oh, wow. And uh, I, I just, we weren't allowed to speak for 10 days. And Goodness. it was amazing how creative I got, <laughs> how many ideas just poured into my head when I silenced the pressure and noise. I think that's a great idea. Uh, in fact, you know, I do some, I do seminars on leadership, and I've tried this a time or two. Um, it, it's a little bit complex to 
put together. And you don't find a lot of people that will buy into um, volunteering to be a prisoner of war. <laughs> but um, the real truth is that the, that the things, I mean, count, count the number of inputs you and I have in our lives every day. The sounds, the sights, the smells, the feels, the you know, hundreds of thousands of inputs. And it's all distracting. You know, very few of those inputs actually result in some kind of a positive thought. In the prison camp, you might have 10 or 12 things a day that came from the outside. Because we had no books to read, no window to look out, no TV, telephone, radio, Blackberry, Blue. We didn't have we didn't have anything but our own minds. And you can get really creative. We started to teach each other courses that we'd learned in college. And uh, my friend Joe Milligan started a course in biology. It lasted about five days, first time he taught this course. By the end of the six years, his course lasted six months, just because every day he'd lay back on his board bed and he'd think about biology. And, and, and it's amazing what's, what's back in that gray matter that we never tap into because we, we don't stop and think. But that's fascinating. A 10-day seminar where you couldn't speak. Yep. It's, were, there uh, it, it, were there activities? Or, I mean, it, meditation, 13 hours a day. It. Wow. That wow. was pretty amazing. <laughs> it was, it was, so Michael suggested that I do it, but it was, uh, it was, uh, it, it was an incredible experience. Wow. It seems, though, you've discovered through incredible trial some very simple but very powerful secrets to life. And I, I just have to say, I mean, sitting here listening to you, I, I can't wait to learn more. I mean, I have 20 questions I want to ask you, personal questions about your mindset and what you went through and, you know, this, the statement that you made about um, PTSD and, and while your group suffered less from that and others didn't. I think today that is such an important conversation to be people to understand. People go through trauma, tragic experiences that they don't understand why it lingers and, and does they do not get over that. So thanks for opening up for me today, Charlie, this, this opportunity to learn more about it. And, um, I'm just looking forward to actually consuming your thought leadership. Well, thanks. I, I certainly appreciate that. Uh, the, the psychiatrists have come up with a new term now, uh, designed and developed because of this. Uh, you know, because of this, it's called PTG, post-traumatic growth, and, uh, nice. and and you know, and we're we're applying that to veterans with P, uh, with PTSD. Uh, and being quite successful, that we can actually turn this thing around, that you can actually benefit by stresses that you've had in your life. And, you know, this isn't uh, rocket science, uh, and this happened for years and years and years. Look, if you look back in history, the personalities that had great challenges in their life and rose rose to the challenge. Absolutely. It, it's just that we... You know, I think we as, as, as humans, it's, it's human nature to try to avoid pain, to try to avoid the stress. And, uh, and yet sometimes it's those, those stresses really are, are, and the decisions we make, the choices we make about those stresses are, are what um, forms our character. Charlie, absolutely. There are numerous examples of folks like this. The uh, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, JFK, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, just to look at some American presidents, went through some horrendous experiences, and that's what allowed them to uh, use that adversity as fuel to propel them forward. Mm -hmm. So uh, I like it. I'm I'm looking forward to, uh, as Michael said, consuming more of your thought leadership. We'd, uh, we're going to pick up uh, a copy of uh, of your book, and I'll, uh, I'll send you. I'll send you guys a copy of my book. I'll oh, autograph well, the book for you, you and uh, send it to you. I really and, appreciate and, that. And there are a couple of other books. I'll I'll communicate with you and uh, and recommend a couple of other things because it really does integrate nicely with your your philosophy of thought leadership. When really all you have is is your th- your thought process. You know, you don't have any other. If you don't have any other tools, and and that's. It really epitomizes the situation we were in. It was just, uh, you know, we were we were clueless. All we had was our thoughts, but that was enough. That and, was uh, enough. It propelled us into, you know, things that we could never have done had we not been left with only the thought leadership of these guys. Incredible. We like to end off every episode by asking you, our guests, for your top three expert action steps that you recommend our listener take on in their life and in their business to move it to the next level. So what are yours? Okay, we talked about solitude. And I, and if you're, if you're religious, go to prayer. If you're not, uh, take up yoga. Uh, if you're neither one of those, you know, find some corner of your house and just sit there for 15 minutes a day. B- because as you know, as you have found, it stimulates thoughts that you never would have had uh, just being alone. And it's tough, you know? I mean, the t- t- 10 days without talking to anybody, my goodness. But, but try 15 minutes. 15 minutes is tough uh, w- without distractions. We, we thrive on these distractions. So that would have been my first thought, is find some solitude in something that you do. Second thing is, um, I, I believe that all of life is driven by purpose. Find a purpose in life. And if you don't have one, get one. A defined purpose in life, I think, is what uh, being on this globe is all about. Third thing, I think, is you, you can't do it alone. Um, the guys in the prison camp who wouldn't or couldn't communicate with the rest of us were goners. They weren't going to make it. It was just, it was incredible, the value of human contact. And sometimes it was a simple thing. My first communication was a guy who passed a a wire through a hole in the wall to my cell. And just the simple tugging on a wire and to have that wire tug back meant two things. It meant, number one, I'm alive. I'm, I'm, I'm viable. I'm I, I am important. Somebody is responding physically to something I am doing physically. Thus, I exist. And number two, somebody cares. So find, you know, find people in your life who you care about and who care about you and, uh, and communicate and with love to, to those people. I love these three expert action steps. They are fantastic. So solitude, get a purpose, and don't do it alone. Don't do it alone is actually something Michael and I preach. In fact, we put together this thing called the Authority Marketing Blueprint. And the most important of the 10 steps that we recommend is don't do it alone. Make sure you've got mentors. Make sure you've got a great peer group. 
And uh, we believe in this so much that we developed a whole program based on peer grouping and mentorship and education. And we believe in the power of it. And it's just lovely to have that validated by such a... uh, honored thought leader as you. It's, it's, it's just been amazing having you on here. So Charlie, tell us about um, your book or, or anything else that you'd like to promote right now so we can let the, the audience know. Thanks for that. Uh, my autobiography, I'm No Hero, is in its 32nd printing. And so it's been around. And I'm happy to autograph that to anybody that orders one from my website, uh, charlieplum.com. That's C-H-A-R-L-I-E-P-L-U-M-B.com. I'm, uh, you know, I'm all over the, the web and Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. I speak, I continue to speak um, five or six times a month all over the country, all over the world, really. Uh, and I do leadership seminars, uh, keynote speaking. So I've spoken about 5,000 times. Uh, and so got to keep doing it till I get it right. <laughs> <laughs> 5,000 times. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, 5,000 times. Well, I've been doing this for 44 years. So um, I have more frequent flyer miles than about anybody you know. <laughs> That's incredible, Charlie. It, it, it's an honor to have had you here on the show. You are a, a, a true hero, and uh, your story is, is riveting, fascinating, and full of gold. I, I, for one, am very glad to have the opportunity to interview you here today. And thank you so much for being on the show. Nikki, Michael, thank you very much. A pleasure of mine. Uh, I hope we can continue to communicate in any way I can be of service to you. Let me know. Thank Thank you, you, Charlie. Thank you. That wraps another episode of the Business of Thought Leadership podcast. To learn more about today's phenomenal guest and to get all sorts of valuable free business building resources, you can go to thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. For more information and to download the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit us at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Thank you for listening.